2: Good morning. Welcome to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN, your Bills pregame political show here today. And do we not have a lot to talk about? Brenda Alacy joins me as always, live from her personal studio. Brenda, good morning.
3: <laughs> good morning, Joe. And what a week it was, as they say in the business. And uh, believe it or not, it's 1,861 days until the next presidential election.
2: Oh, can <laughs> we just can we just take a break? <laughs> you know, Brenda, just a little inside baseball before we go to our first guest. It is difficult planning a show. When we didn't know this week if there would be a declared winner by Sunday, you know, we didn't know if we'd be talking about a contested election or an announced president-elect.
3: You know, you could probably say that for next week's show, too, Joe, because it was so open-ended and there was so much controversy that it it, uh, was really difficult to figure out what to do. But. You know certainly we know what the topics are and let me correct myself it's 1455 days to the next president oh election. even closer yeah yeah so uh, get ready um but it um yeah it was a very strange week in that sense and it was almost like um a nail biter and you know a bills game for instance where you feel like you're just on the edge of your seat waiting for the latest thing to happen and not knowing what might happen and hoping that it, there wouldn't be civil unrest in the streets and Uh, You know, all sorts of uh, court cases that will be looming, I think, uh, are given. But hoping that this whole thing doesn't end up in a huge uh, litigation for all Americans to suffer through. So, yeah, definitely a week unlike any I can remember, Joe. And I'm sure that our our first guest, um, SUNY Buffalo State Professor Peter Iacobucci would probably agree as well, even though he's been watching uh, the political scene for many, many years.
4: Brenda, you said that the next election is in a 1,000. Uh, 455 days, I almost hung up on you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you, Peter. I can understand why. Uh, I think we all need to take a deep breath here. And uh, first of all, thank you for joining us this morning on Hardline. Uh, What was your uh, reaction to what happened this week? Each day something new was unfolding and we were watching it almost 24-7. How did it shake out for you since this is what you do day in and day out?
4: Well, I think as everybody knows by now, the polls were off again. Um, And this time they overinflated Joe Biden's support um, and once again uh, undercounted President Trump's support. But one thing that didn't surprise me is that as votes were continued to be counted, especially mail-in ballots, that Joe Biden would continue to see his total go up and and either catch or pass um, Donald Trump in certain states or pull away in other states. That didn't surprise me. And so, you know, in the end, you know, there's still a few votes out there to be counted. um, But the results as far as who won, was what was expected. And what we saw from polls for the last year, there was never a poll that showed Donald Trump was going to win this election, or at least an average of polls that showed that. And so Joe Biden won, and he'll be the next president of the United States.
3: Peter, what do you make of uh, the claim that polls are just inherently unreliable now because of the fact that people are are uh, sought out after in different ways? In other words, you have many people with no landline, many people who have only mobile phones, uh, others who are just not able to uh, be communicated with. How much of that impacted uh, the polling? And does it make it, uh, in fact, obsolete now?
4: I, I don't think it makes it obsolete. It makes it difficult. I, and I think, I think the biggest problem this year, at least from, you know, the initial assessment of what went wrong with the polls, wasn't so much that we got people's opinions wrong, is that we did not do a good job modeling of whether a person was actually going to vote or not. This is record turnout. We've, we have not seen this percentage of the U.S. Uh, citizenry vote since 1900, where we never had any polling models back then. So the problem this year was that we predicted the way people were going to vote. We just didn't predict the percentage of people that would actually end up voting.
2: Professor, I, I want to ask you, looking at the parties in America, right? You've got the two major parties and then some third parties. Uh, but looking at the Democrat Party in particular, you know, they, they took a loss in 2016. Uh, is- do you think this election is a result of changes they made within the party? Or was it just now Donald Trump has a record to run on and that's what lost them the election?
4: No, I, th- I think this election had almost nothing to do with policy. Literally almost nothing. This was an election about Donald Trump and Donald Trump alone. Um, the, the Democrats um, picked the one candidate that pretty much was as milk toast as you could get, that is not offensive to anybody, um, and they went with that candidate knowing that the election was going to be about repudiating Donald Trump and the behavior of Donald Trump. In fact, if you look at the discussion that went on through the entire campaign, there was very little policy discussion. We didn't talk about the deficit, and, and it was really about Donald Trump and who Donald Trump was. That's what determined this election.
2: So uh, now looking to 2024, what is it the Republicans have to do to run against someone like a Joe Biden who, hey, you might not like him on policy. But when you look at personality, Joe Biden's more likable, personal than Donald Trump.
4: Well, the biggest thing the Republicans have to do, and this probably will get uh, determined quickly within a year at least. Um, What happens to Donald Trump? Does he stay actively involved within politics within the Republican Party? The Republican Party has become defined by Donald Trump almost exclusively. Does it stay that way or does it return to a more conservative policy-based party that we're used to in the past? That's really the decision for the Republicans. And from what I've seen so far, they haven't made a decision yet. I've seen a lot of individuals that I've talked to that are saying no, we're you know Trump is it, and the populist message that Trump brought is it. I've also seen many Republicans that walked away this election said we need to return to our base core roots and get away from this uh, personality, of, a party of personality. That will be largely determined within the next year, I would expect, and it will be determined by the actions of Donald Trump himself.
2: Does Donald Trump pull a Grover Cleveland and run in twenty twenty four? He might.
4: He might not. Donald Trump has some major problems facing him. He owes a tremendous amount of money, almost a half a billion dollars that are coming due before 2024. And as far as I can see, he does not have a way to easily refinance that debt. The other problem is, as we know, living here in New York, and Latita, uh, Latita James, our attorney general, as well as attorney generals in many states across the United States, are, will be coming after Trump for bank fraud and tax evasion. Um, he might be too distracted to run again in 2024. And the other thing to say, Donald Trump's 74 years old. It is remarkable. We just elected a president that is 77 years old. Donald Trump will be older than Joe Biden if he runs again in 2024. And as we all know, Donald Trump does not take care of his body very well. The body can only last so long. I don't know if he'll be physically able to survive to 2024 and run a robust campaign in 2024.
3: You know, uh, speaking of numbers and age, Peter, uh, Biden will be 78 in just a few days, November 20th is his birthday. So uh, even older than uh, what we talked about during the campaign, you know, a 73-year-old versus a 77-year-old. He's actually, you know, 78 as he takes office in January. Um, I wanted to go back to your point uh, about Donald Trump himself, because as you were describing Trump being, at a, uh, the election about this being about Trump and Trump alone, it it occurs to me that when he won, when he came down that escalator, like everybody talks about that that kind of classic scene, it was about him being so different, being an outlier, not being a typical politician, and I think that absolutely helped him win the election. You know, I remember in the early days of that campaign, I would watch him all the time, and hey, this guy is so bombastic, but he's a fresh, uh, a breath of fresh air, and he's this and he's that. He's he's not a typical political person, and the whole drain the swamp thing. Uh, led into that. And that, my point is, I guess that is really what I think propelled him into the presidency. And now you come four years later, and it's that very personality that I think helped get him out of the presidency. Do you see a, a, a comparison like that as well?
4: Oh, I think that's especially true. I, I, you know, he was unique. He was fresh. He was, and I'll give you a quick little story. In the 2016 election, um, I watched the election results. I was out we could still go out to a restaurant um sitting with friends watching the results come in and as we watched the results come in it became clearer and clearer that donald trump was going to win the election the the uh, waitress that was serving us i asked her a question i said do you mind if i ask you who you voted for and she said no i don't mind i said you know it's not any of my business if you don't want to come and she said i voted for trump and i said how come she said well i'm 28 years old i've got a college degree I'm working a daytime shift at a bar trying to make enough money. This is my third job. Um, She goes, I just want change. I want something different because I don't see a future where it is right now. And I think that spoke to so many people back in 2016 that that's the hopes they pinned on Donald Trump, that they would change the system. They wouldn't be stuck in doing a second job or a third job or struggling financially after four years we have a pandemic, we have the collapse of the economy as a result of the pandemic. And I think a lot of people said, you know what? We gave it a shot, it didn't work. I'm still struggling. I still have three jobs. And I think for a lot of people, at least enough to change the results of the election. Because remember, if you compare 2016 to 2020, we're talking less than 10 percentage points of individuals you know, between Trump winning and Trump losing. Um, that was enough to change the result of the election. People simply said, we put up with him. We don't want to put up with any more. It didn't change the way I thought it was going to change.
3: Do you think people said, well, you know, his personality can be off putting? His, his comments are often coarse. He's got his whole family working there, it seems. But do you think people were willing to excuse that because their 401k looked so good that the economy was booming? And then boom the, the pandemic hit and all bets are off is it is it how you view it as well
4: yep i, I think that and i i've, I've speak, spoken to hundreds of people that have expressed exactly that i abhor his behavior i don't like his tweets i don't like what he says i don't like how he reacts to other people but if he can make my life better economically i'm willing to accept it and as we saw this year that collapsed. And whether you want to blame the pandemic or, or his economic policies, um, that'll be determined in the future. But, but I think that was enough for enough voters to say, I don't want to put up with this guy if I'm not getting the benefit side of it.
3: If not for the pandemic, Peter, would he have been reelected?
4: Oh, I I think almost for sure. Yes. I think a couple of reasons. One, I think the economy would have done much better. Um, Two, we have built into our system uh, the advantages that the incumbent has, is tremendous uh, is a tremendous advantage um but i think with the pandemic and it's not just the pandemic it's the pandemic and how it was handled and how the competence of the federal government was really put under test and it failed it has failed so far in this pandemic we have more daily cases today than we have had almost the entire pandemic
0: Um, and i
4: think that is an indication that people said look this president simply is not able to handle a situation like the pandemic
2: Professor, uh, as you can tell, I like to look a little forward. Looking back, something that was clouded on Tuesday were the gains that Republicans made in the House. That wasn't expected at all. How does that set up for 2022 when Donald Trump's not on the ballot? Are Republicans, obviously, before anything happens, this would have to be a a guess because we don't know what uh, President Biden will do once he takes over. But are Republicans in a good position for a good midterm?
4: Well, and usually the out party is, uh, we always see the out party, the the party that is not represented by the presidency will do well in a midterm election. Yes, they are. They are very well positioned. And I will say for those, those people that are, are uh, saying, I can't, you know, Trump did ran a poor election. He ran a remarkably successful election. He gained more po- points or more votes in this presidency than any candidate ever, except Joe Biden in this election. And it, that his turnout, especially his turnout on actual election day, brought many more Republican House winners um, into the House. Now, that means the House is very closely divided. The, The difference between the Democrats and Republicans will be closer, very, very close. It means who wins the House will be up for grabs in 2022, and I would expect the Republicans will probably have an advantage, again, because it's a midterm election.
3: Peter, I wanna go back to uh, Joe Biden and I thought your description of him was was perfect. I mean, he really was kind of the milquetoast candidate, you know, a centrist guy, had some baggage certainly and almost 50 years in political office. In fact, he came in uh, during the Watergate scandals when he first entered um, national prominence. And even though he was this middle of the road, uh, you know, kind of milquetoast guy, he made a selection of Kamala Harris as his running mate. And that certainly would would raise eyebrows for some people, even in this day and age. you have a woman of color, first female vice president now in our history. Was that a huge gamble on his part? Or was it pandering perhaps to the minority communities and women who maybe felt like, oh, you're doing this as a token to us? How did you how did you see that?
4: I, I think it was a, a, a brilliant choice. Uh, again, we'll make the comparison back to 2016. In 2016, Hillary Clinton picked Tim Kaine, a, a white uh, male from Virginia, which all indication is did almost nothing for a campaign. By picking uh, Miss Harris, you pick an individual who is a minority that appeals to ethnic minorities in the United States, but is not. A progressive. This is not AOC. This is not the member of the squad that that are vilified by Republicans. And so what that meant is she was just like Joe Biden, a safe pick. This is not someone that is is threatening as some of the more progressive members of the Democratic Party are. Yet appeals to minority uh, communities within the Democratic uh, caucus and constituency. I thought it was an excellent pick. I, I look. I thought both President Trump, um, but even so, Joe Biden ran a fantastic campaign. He never stepped out of his lane. He never uh, threatened individuals, um, thought of what could this guy do. He ran on who he is, and it won him the presidency.
3: I think some people would say who are Trump supporters that Biden may not have stepped out of his lane, but did he step out of his basement enough? Uh, (laughs) You know, it seemed like that strategy ultimately worked well in Biden's favor. Well,
4: and I think, and as you saw, in the last month of the campaign, when, when no matter what the Trump campaign did, the polls simply did not move. They barely budged. And the desperation began to come in. It reminded me of when McCain ran, um, the desperation at the end of the campaign, doing things that probably are not the smartest. Having huge rallies during the middle of a pandemic may gin up support in your base, but for moderates, for individuals that are on the fence... They see that. And then they see the president getting COVID. They see the president's family getting COVID. They see members of his staff getting COVID. They, people just see that and think, how reckless. What? A, this is not the appropriate role of a president to do, even during a campaign.
3: Peter, I want to go back to your point about Kamala Harris and uh, her, her Democratic principles. And many people will, will paint her with that same brush that you mentioned, the AOC faction, if you will. In what way do you think she's different from the radical left of the party?
4: Oh, very different. I mean, if you look at her policies coming out of the state of California, um, this was a a district attorney and a prosecutor of individuals, not a a community activist, not a – she's very, very different. Now, she will try and bridge that gap between the moderate wing of the party, the Joe Biden wing of the party, and the more progressive wing of the party – but I think people would make a mistake to think that uh, Miss Harris is a member of the progressive wing. She is not. Um, she is a much more moderate individual. And I would expect through uh, uh, President Biden's first term, you're not going to see a lot of waves from uh, Kamala Harris. You're going to see the same actions that you saw from Mike Pence, um, simply supporting the president and echoing what the president says um, and and perhaps waiting her turn to run again in 20 or to run for president in 2024 if Biden doesn't choose to run again, or in 2028, if he wins election. Professor,
2: well, Professor, um, take it off the election for just a question. You know, we found out this week that SUNY schools are not coming back after the Thanksgiving break. You working at a SUNY school, can you give us a little insight to that?
4: Well, I, we had always planned, I work at SUNY Buffalo State, we had always planned from before the semester even started that come Thanksgiving, of students would be dismissed and, and go home to their communities or wherever they live. What we didn't want to have happen is students on campus either uh, be positive and then go home, bring it home, or go home, interact with individuals that are possibly positive and then bring it back to campus. That's sort of the worst situation. Um, the the UB uh, has had some difficulty. Buff state, the numbers have been remarkably low at Buff state and great praise to any, any education institution, both the local um, schools and the higher education institutions to keep their numbers low. Um, I think people are very worried with what we're seeing with the rise in numbers um, here in western New York and in other parts in the state, Rochester as well. They're nervous that we're about to enter another spike period.
3: And Peter, uh, speaking of students and your long career at Buff State, did you ever see your student population as galvanized is this year when it comes to voting and just uh, political interest in the presidential election?
4: Um, I, I could say yes, but I'll say that with a caveat. I used to teach in Stark County, Ohio, which is sort of the bedrock of the, a swing state. Uh, every During the 2004 presidential campaign, um, we had visits by presidential candidates seven times within the two months before the election. Students were very motivated then because they saw the candidates every time. What I saw this time, and, and I think this goes beyond just this election, um, this generation of students, the students that are currently 30 years old and younger, are are motivated. They're, they're engaged much more than I have seen in a long, long time. Um, and I expect that engagement is probably going to continue through their lifetime. Um, I have said to people, and, and people have laughed at me when I said this, this current generation will probably go down as one of the greatest generations for their individual actions that they're willing to take both conservative and liberal. Um, They're willing to get out there. They're willing to sacrifice of themselves and their time and their effort um, to make their communities better. And it's a great thing to see.
3: Is it, is it something that precludes uh, somebody who may feel uh, like they align with the principles of Trump and the Republicans? Because it seems to me, now you tell me maybe this is a stereotype that many college campuses really have more of a democratic student base and is it difficult for perhaps a student who doesn't feel that way to make his or her, her voice known?
4: Well, I think, I, yes, I think you're, on most college campuses and, and most youthful individuals are going to be more liberal um, than conservative. But what I have seen is conservatives on campus, it, it, the way they did when Ronald Reagan was president, have really taken aggressive actions to make their voices heard whether they're a minority or not, a, a, as numerical minority on their campus. Um, and so, as I said, the the engagement, the, the civic community action of the students that I'm teaching right now, whether conservative, whether moderate, whether liberal, is at an all-time high, at least from my experience as a professor.
2: You know, I have to say, as a, as someone who does lean to the right and went to school during the 08 election, yes. Conservatives are outnumbered, but almost every professor I had, if politics came up in a discussion, they would give everyone equal time, and it was always nice to hear both opinions. Something I wish we could do on a national forum, uh, especially given the uh, the tension right now in America.
4: Yeah, I think, uh, look, uh, the one thing I'll say about this election is, just like the past several presidential elections, at least back to two thousand. We are a remarkably divided country i mean we we this is a country that is divided almost straight down the middle um and and while it slightly leans to favor the democrats right now in this election cycle the next election cycle it could switch back and slightly lean to favor the republicans um, if you look back to the 2000 election and elections since then presidential elections 42 of the 50 states have voted the same way every single time that has happened Um, And for polling numbers, what we're seeing is um, we're seeing an emptying of the middle, people moving farther left if you're a left liberal, people moving farther right if you're a right conservative. And the thing that bothers me or concerns me about that is that is very difficult for democracy to do well. Um, When you hollow out the center, it makes it very difficult to compromise on any policy area. Look at Congress right now. It's almost impossible to get anything passed, even the most minor of bills. Um, and what we need to see if we want to see democracy succeed in America, America is the, the left individuals start moving more towards the center. The right individuals move more towards the center. Look for common grounds in which they can make actions and make life better for the American public.
2: Great point to end on, Professor Peter Yakabushi. Always great talking to you.
4: Great talking to you guys. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks, you, Thank you. too. Thank you
3: so much. on, Coming... no, that's one thing for sure. We won't have a dull moment anytime soon, even though the election has been called. No, and like
2: the professor said, I mean, just look at the popular vote. Yes, Joe Biden uh, got a few million more, but it was pretty much right down the middle. We are very divided. I mean, we just saw an election that two guys got the most, you know, the most and second most votes of anyone to ever run for president.
3: Unbelievable times and we'll talk more about it Uh, news break coming up right here on News Radio 930 WBEN and then political strategist Carol Calabrese a familiar voice right here on the station will join us and
0: welcome. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns including right here in yours
3: back to Hardline on this uh, very busy Sunday morning. Brenda Alacy here with you, Joe Beamer also on board for Hardline. We're here every Sunday, by the way, live from 10 until noon. And if you miss the show, we're going to bre- uh, rebroadcast it this afternoon. Uh, when Joe uh, steps back into the studio, he'll confirm the time, but it will be rebroadcast this afternoon. And uh, it's always available on podcast too, if you want to catch a particular interview. All right, so eight zero three oh nine thirty is the number to call in, and uh, your texts are welcome as well. All you do is simply punch in 716-803-0930, and that will appear on the Volkswagen of Orchard Park text board. And joining us now, Carl Calabrese, a political strategist and partner at uh, Calabrese, Masiello, and Martucci. Good morning, Carl.
5: Good morning, Brenda.
3: Thank you so much for uh, joining us. I know you've been a, a busy guy. I've seen you all over the local media and certainly heard you many times right here on WBEN. Have you had a little bit of time to sit back and digest what happened this past week? And if so, what's your uh, overall take on what happened uh, over the past several days? Yeah,
5: I have had a chance to think about it. And, uh, you know, I thought going into the race that there there were two forces that would be butting heads, and one was going to win, and the two forces were the shy Trump voter, which – Pollsters agree exist, but there's great disagreement as to what the percentage is. Uh, some think it's two and a half to three percent, and some think it's as high as six or seven. Um, I thought that if it was two and a half to three percent, Trump would lose. If it was six or seven, he could win. And the other factor was the Trump fatigue factor, um, and I think that really prevailed on election day. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. You're probably in the same situation that said, you know, I, I like his policies, but I, I just can't take him anymore. I, I can't take the turmoil and the chaos. I, I want things to calm down. So I, I think that was prevalent. Um, and then the other, the other thing that caught my attention was, from a strategic standpoint, uh, a month or so ago when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did something that it may be challenged. I think it's Trump's best challenge in a court case when they, the, the law in Pennsylvania says that all ballots must be in by election day. That's a law that's on the books. The Supreme Court of, of Pennsylvania, which is a partisan court, the judges run for office as a Republican or Democrat. Uh, the, the, the court is seven to two Democrats. Uh, they rule that that law doesn't apply, that they were going to add three days onto the deadline. I thought that was huge, and I think that may very well have cost Trump Pennsylvania. Now, if they go to court, here's, there's a lot of ifs here. If they decide to go to court and challenge that, they have to, they have to hope the Supreme Court, number one, takes the case. The no, you know, Supreme Court is under no obligation to take it. If they do take it, they have to rule that the action of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court was unconstitutional, and then they have to invalidate all of the votes that came in after the deadline, election day. That's a lot, that's a heavy lift, um, and even with that, if he then won Pennsylvania, he would still have to win Georgia on a recount, and he would have to win either uh, and he'd have to win either Arizona or Nevada to get above 270. That's also assuming that he wins Alaska and North Carolina, which he has comfortable leads in now. So, you know, it's just we'll see where the Trump people go. But I think that that may be their best, and only chance in the courts uh, to contest the election, and, and that's going to be based on a constitutional issue.
2: Carl, if you were part of the Trump team right now, what would you tell him?
5: I'd tell them to go to court. Go to the Supreme Court and make the case that the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overstepped the law. Uh, you know, when people say, what do you mean by uh, judges making law? Well, here's a classic, classic example. You have a law that's on the books that's passed by an elected body, and a judge says, or judges say, it doesn't apply. We're going to unilaterally add three days onto the deadline. That's the classic example of judges making law, not interpreting law. And so I, I would say let's, let's see if the Supreme Court will take the case. What's there to lose? If they say no, then we're done.
3: Carol, uh, I've been listening to all sorts of political analysts all week. I mean, I have to admit I'm really riveted to this uh this whole process, it's a historic and fascinating and dramatic day in and day out. And I believe it was you who made a very telling analogy about that for the president to prevail, he would have to throw and complete four Hail Mary passes. Was that your analogy? That was
5: mine. Yeah, I said he'd have to throw four successes yep. Hail Mary passes and have yes. them completed. And there are three right here, like I said, having going to the Supreme Court, having the court accept the case, having the court rule in your favor, having the court rule that those ballots are invalid, and then, win, then you still have to win Pennsylvania without those ballots. So there, there's four right there, and then your fifth would be winning Georgia on, on the recount. And it will go to a recount, because right now Trump is behind two-tenths of one percent, and under Georgia law that's an automatic recount. Uh, so he'd have to then win Georgia, there's another Hail Mary pass, and then win either Nevada or Arizona, another Hail Mary pass. So, as I said yesterday, Brenda, there, I'm sure there are odds makers in Las Vegas that could give us odds on all of those things, uh, but they'd be, they'd be pretty long odds.
3: 803 if you'd like to get on board and talk with political strategist Carol Calabres, also a partner at Massiolo Martucci, and Calabres, We'll go to line two. Frank is on the line. Good morning, Frank. Welcome.
6: One thing I wanted to comment about was during the election coverage, which I watch on Fox, the constant we retrospective look to the Hillary Clinton race, which was four years ago, and then every time the guy had, um, would look at the board that Bill—I can't remember his last name—he would say, "Well, this here's how much uh, Trump had back in 2016." And like, I didn't care about. I don't want to hear about Hillary Clinton and that election. That election was over. Um, secondly, I think it's funny that uh, Biden is calling for unity now, now that it's over. After everybody's been Screaming at each other for the last whatever four years, and I don't think Republicans are going to forget the, the let's blow up the White House comment by Madonna and the rest of them. I mean, the, 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 it's 50 50, and I, I don't think it's up to the Republican side to to um, unify. I think it's up to Biden's people to persuade the, the uh, Trump voters that, that they can do that, uh, they, can, they can govern. But come on, he's, he's, the first thing he's going to do is go after everything Trump, Trump did. He's going to attack the Supreme Court. He's going to take the tax cuts away. He's going to do every, that's what, that's what the elections are for. But don't, don't come out there trying to say that we're all going to be unified now. It's going to be la-dee-da.
3: Carl, do you have a comment on that? Thank you, Frank. A couple of comments.
5: Firstly, the, the comment about Fox going back and looking at counties from four years ago. It, to politicians, that is interesting all right? You want to look at trends. You want to see uh, where counties or towns are going, where they have been, if there's movement towards you. Those, those trends really tell you whether or not a county or a state uh, is worth fighting. Uh, and so it is, it is interesting. It is relevant. Uh, on the other point that Frank makes, he's actually right. You've got 70 million people in this country who voted for Donald Trump, who believe that their issues are not taken up in Washington. That people in Washington, New York, and on the two coasts, you know, look down on them, disdain them, ridicule them, and Trump was their voice. And so, you know, they're not going away. Uh, their agenda is not going away, and we'll have to see what happens. I mean, if, if if Biden issues executive orders undoing Trump executive orders, they're going to have a lot of impact, especially, on, let's, let's say, on Pennsylvania. If he rejoins the Paris Climate Accord, uh, that, that may not sit real well with voters in in Pennsylvania, once that all plays out and the effects of that hit that state's energy business, uh, so you know, yeah, we we are a divided country. We still are, and the people who voted for Trump feel that Washington doesn't work for them. And it and it's we'll see in four years how the party evolves. I have often said, Brenda, that it's going to be very interesting to watch a couple of things in both parties. How does no. the Republican Party deal with a post-Trump era? And how do the Democrats now deal with a Joe Biden? Who is Joe Biden? Is he Joe Biden, the moderate of the primary? Or is he the Joe Biden who turned over his, essentially his, his platform writing to Bernie Sanders and AOC?
2: Carl, I, I want to ask you about something you just said, what is the Republican Party's move or what should be their move uh, come the midterm elections? I mean, what's really been clouded, as I said, with the professor in the first segment, where the Republicans made some huge gains in the House. Uh, What's the Republican Party's move in 2022, an election that won't have Donald Trump on the ballot?
5: Well, you know, if you look at history, a president's first midterm election is usually not very good. There are exceptions where they, the party in power in the White House gains seats, but for the most part, they lose them. Now, I'm, I don't think we know the final number yet on the House on what the Democrat majority is going to be, but it's going to be smaller, and it could be as few as five or six. Uh, so the Republican Party should be, historically, in a good position to take back the House. Now, what happens in terms of issues? What are the issues of the day? How popular is Biden going into that race? Uh, you know, what's the economy like? all of that will determine what the Republican Party runs on and what issues really favor them, and if they can drive those issues up to the top of voters' minds and take back the House. And the other thing, Joe, is that you've got a situation this year. It's amazing the Republicans were able to keep control or even be in the in the hunt for keeping control of the Senate because, as you know, every two years, one-third of the Senate runs. And there were like 23 Republican seats that were on the ballot versus 10 Democrats, and so they had a lot more to defend. In two years, it's just the opposite. There'll be 22 or 23 Democrat seats on the ballot and only 10 Republicans. So uh, strategically, historically, the party may be in very, very good shape uh, at, at the legislative level with the House and the Senate.
3: Carol, another caller on the line. It is Kevin from Pendleton. Good morning, Kevin.
5: Hey, good morning, folks.
7: And uh, before I uh, ask Carl my question here, can I do a quick uh, commendation, shout-out to the Western New York uh, DNC? You see, um, uh, election night, uh, they did something by uh, socially distancing themselves from the NY27 candidate by blackmailing him. And although he's a white boy, they blackmail him um, from being in the um, after-party, you know, watch party um, during the count that night. You see... There's a, fine level, there's a fine line in the level of human decency which one can cross. And even if the DNC leadership, some don't have a soul of humanity left in them, there's, there's a, a number of them still do. And when Nate McMurray made such a despicable, inhuman remark upon Michael Caputo's um, stage 4 cancer diagnosis, then he wonders why he lost the race and why that the DNC distanced themselves from from him. So at least I commend them for doing that. Uh, Carl, here's my question to you, sir. You see, I I say, as far as I I said before, and I've been heard on this radio station and elsewhere, we have said that the the, the white elephant in this entire room with this um, election situation on a national level is the the transparency uh, of our um, electoral process. I don't think our founding fathers... Um, intended uh, for 100 years for two political parties to dominate this. And I think that this is what needs to be overhauled. And, uh, you know, Republicans are noted for voter suppression tactics, and Democrats for fraud, let's face it. So here's my question to you, sir. Um, Do you think it's about time we revamp this entire system when it comes to our electoral process? And if there were a third-party entity representing all third parties, and independence in every board of elections, we'd never be in this mess. I'll listen off here.
5: Well, Brenda, you ready, ready for me to answer that?
3: Yes, please do, Carol.
5: Yeah, um, some good points there. First of all, let me say, it, it, voter suppression is one of those terms Democrats love to throw out, whether the facts support it or not. Uh, down in Georgia, Stacey Abrams has been screaming voter suppression ever since she lost the race turns out that that year the african-american vote in georgia was the highest in history in some places exceeding the turnout of white voters so uh, this constant charge of voter suppression uh, when you look at the fact leaves a lot to be desired but let's get to his main point uh, and by the way i do agree with him about um, uh, nate mcmurray's heartless and cold tweet about michael caputo's health situation i really think that stayed with him and i think that had a lot of people shaking their heads when they when they heard about it and uh, took it to the voting booth with them. But in terms of the Electoral College, I, I need to disagree with Kevin a bit. I think our founding fathers intended a two-party system from the get-go. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have set up a system where to get to be president, you need a majority, of 50% plus one of the electors. Uh, it's really tough to get to 50% plus one if you have a multi-party system. Our founders were very, very concerned about what they called factions, what they, by, by that, they meant all of the different factions and parties in Europe. Uh, and they didn't want that. They wanted, a, they wanted two broad-based parties that would have to be moderate in their position so they could attract, under a big tent concept, 50% plus one. That's, the, that's why we have an college. You start having three and four and five parties, <laughs> you talk about a constitutional crisis, you're never going to have a consensus of, uh, of somebody winning, and it, it, it could be a mess. And so I'm in favor of the Electoral College because it gives states play in a federal election. And I keep reminding people, the federal government did not create the states. It was the other way around. States created the federal government. Uh, Now, could it be reformed? Yes. And I was talking with Tom Barley the other day about this. Didn't get a chance because of time constraints to give my last point. But back in the 80s, Jean Kirkpatrick, brilliant woman who was the U.N. ambassador for Ronald Reagan, put forth a reform of the Electoral College that would pretty much guarantee states still have it, are in play, but yet the popular vote would matter. Now, this would take a constitutional amendment, but what she said was every state gets two bonus votes. They go into a pool. Winner of the popular vote gets to take all 100 bonus votes that are in the pool. That does two things. It, first of all, pretty much guarantees that whoever wins the popular vote is then going to win the electoral vote. But the other thing it does is it now makes every state in play. Right now, we in New York are not even part of the presidential campaign because it's it's so Democrat that a Republican never campaigns in New York. So it it doesn't matter if a Republican loses New York by 100 votes or a million votes. It's a winner take all. Under this system that Kirkpatrick put forward, every state now matters to both parties. Even if you're going to lose it, you want to lose it by as small a margin as possible. And if you're going to win it, you want to win it by as big a margin as possible so that you can get that 100 votes, those 100 bonus votes. And so under that system, New York would hear and see commercials and have more visits by the candidates because it would matter that a Democrat maximize his or her vote, and it would matter that a Republican minimizes his or her vote.
2: Hey, Carl, do you mind joining us for another segment? No, that'd be fine. Awesome. All right. We will be back with Carl Calabrese and your calls. 803-0930. It is Hardline. We are back after the news here on WBEN.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.